It's a privilege uh, for me today to talk about the greatest generation. The baby boomers was the first generation where we thought that the world would be better over time. But my generation was looking for more and seeking everything and trying to find answers for themselves. I know for the millennial generation, we were too young to really understand what we were getting ourselves into. Like we focus on school, but like we want to like hang out with our friends a lot. So we always thought that, you know, there's always gonna be a better day. What we realized is that wasn't the case at all. We're gonna get to that in just a minute here. I, uh, last week was preaching at a Bayview Glen Church in Toronto, Canada. Uh, Baby Glenn is a, a pulpit that was once had by A.W. Tozer before he went to Moody, and uh, you know, it was really a privilege to be there. Uh, it's now being pastored by our own Lucas Cooper, and uh, he's doing a fantastic job. And so I uh, agreed to go preach for him there for the weekend. And, you know, Schrader, as many of you know, was here, and I was driving across southwest Ontario uh, yes, or last week in the afternoon and three hour time difference and Kim and I were listening to Schrader uh, on my iPhone, amazing technology and I commented to her at the end of the uh, message, I said that was the most amazing message, not using the Bible, that I've heard in church in a long time. <laughs> I, I said, you know, I know that I'm going to get notes on that one and I haven't checked my notes, I, I was gone all week, but it really wasn't a phenomenal message setting up the uh, whole idea of the, or the, the greatest generation, and I'm really grateful that Tom uh, did that for us. And, and if, at least for me, it's always a treat to have him here. He, in all seriousness, he loves God, he loves our church, he's got an amazing uh, gift, and, and so uh, I try to get him here as often as we can uh, when I'm out of, out of the pulpit. Uh, you know, the, uh, I, I want to make one comment that will kind of tie into the Generation Series on the World Series. Uh, as some of you know, the Cubs are, are playing Cleveland in the World Series. Cleveland is up three games to one. Tonight could be the last game. And you would think that since I'm from Cleveland, that I would be just a huge Cleveland fan. And, and, and I am to a degree. Uh, I mean, Cleveland right now, if, if, the, if, the, if Cleveland wins, will have three record-setting teams. You'd have the Indians going to the pennant. You'd have the, the Cavaliers with the NBA championship. And the Browns have the worst record in the NFL. So <laughs> three record-setting teams in Cleveland. But I will tell you why I'm kind of rooting for the Cubs, and, uh, and, and there's a reason for that, and it really is very personal to me, and it'll tie into this series. Uh, Cubs have not won a pennant in 108 years. They've not been in the World Series since 1945. Uh, my dad, who's 82, is a Depression-era kid. He was born in 34, and then his dad died when he was seven years old in 1941. When his dad died, he was an only child, so it just left my dad and my grandma, and they were living in Modesto, California, where they were left penniless after my uh, grandfather, who I never met, died in 1941. So they had to sell the family car. Most families only had one car back then. They had to sell the car to afford two train tickets back to Peoria, Illinois, where my grandmother had relatives. And that's where my dad would be raised, in Peoria, Illinois. And, and so here you have this Depression-era kid, no money, uh, back in Peoria. And my dad would tell us growing up that he could remember in 1945 huddling around a radio listening to the World Series, hoping that the Cubs would win. And they didn't. 
And, and all growing up, my dad said, my only goal in life is to see the Cubs go to the World Series once again and win. And he's now 82 years old, and I called him this week, and I said, well, half your dream has come true, and the other half isn't looking very good. But, but, but he's now huddled around a TV. And so, you know, kind of for him, I've been kind of rooting a little bit for the Cubs, even though I, I've been an Indians fan. And some of you are saying, why are you telling that story? Because that's what generations are about, amen? It's about hearing stories, understanding each other, understanding where people came from. And it's easy with your parents and things like that, but imagine if a church did that. Imagine if a church were to start to tell stories cross-generationally and really understand and love and, and, and hear each other. We have that opportunity at Scottsdale Bible Church. We have five generations that are present in this church, and part of the vision we have is to show the world, show culture, what it means to love each other in the name of Jesus, even cross-generationally. So this is a very important series for us. And so I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to dive right in. So would you bow with me, please? Father, thank you for uh, the vision that you set in your word when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we treat each other. I think of Jesus' command in John 13, where he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another so that the world may know. Father, I pray that as we talk in detail on what that means in this series, to love each other, even cross-generationally, that God, you might give us wisdom and insight, help us understand each of the generations and culture today, and then, Lord, most importantly, help us to understand what your word and your truth might say about each generation that we can all grab onto. That's my prayer, and I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together. Amen. So Tom began a tradition last week without even knowing it that we're actually going to carry through to this entire series. So venue and campuses, I need you to join us in this and well as well. And that's it. He had everybody from the greatest generation stand. And, and I remember watching this on, on my phone last week. I thought, what an honoring thing to do. We talked in the first week on how we need to honor each generation. And so we're going to do that with baby boomers today. If you were born between 1946 and 19. 1964, I want you to stand right now. 1946 to 1964, have all the baby boomers stand, and the rest of you who are sitting, which aren't very many, let's show your appreciation to them. Amen. All right, you can be seated, and at campuses and venues, you can be seated. I, I got to tell you, I, I sat in my office this week, and I thought I knew it would look like it just looked like. There are a lot of baby boomers here in this place, at our campuses and venues, and in culture in general. You see, it all began in 1946. World War II was now over. The Great Depression had ended, and soldiers came home, and they united with their gals, and they had a lot of babies. In fact, just so we're clear on how many babies, in 1946, there were 3,411,000 babies born, which was a 20% increase from the year before, and it was only going to go up from there. In 1954, right after the Korean War, there were 4,078,000 babies born. And when the baby boom peaked in 1957, there was a record 4.3 million babies born that year. That's 11,780 babies per day, 490 per hour, 8.18 per minute. 
And I'm telling you, that's a lot of babies. And they quickly became known as the baby boom generation or boomers for short. More babies born in an 18-year span than at any other time in the history of America. And only the millennial generation would rival it. Almost 76 million babies were born during the baby boom. And the boomers were born into a world. Now, this is very important that you and I understand this. They were born into a world filled with more optimism and hope than at any other time in the history of the world, save for the incarnation of Jesus. It's true. How many of you ever heard the phrase postmodernism? Raise your hand if you've heard the phrase postmodernism. Just about all of us. Well, what came before postmodernism? It was modernism. In fact, for much of the 19th and 20th century, culture watchers would eventually look back on that time and say that we were living in what they call the modern world or modernity or modernism. And it's really important that you understand what modernism was because it was a time unlike any other time in the history of the known world. It began with the Enlightenment, the age of reason in which knowledge and education uh, grew incrementally. And then you had the Industrial Revolution where steam engines and locomotives and assembly lines and metalwork all became, I mean, it exploded on the scene. And then you had the Scientific Revolution with, with MRIs and antibiotics and microsurgery that was all developed during that, and electricity and though we look back on it now and say, well, Big Whip, man, at the time, it ushered in the what they called the medieval world into the modern world, I mean, in a significant way. And it changed society. And cultures would call it modernity. It was a time in the 19th and 20th centuries of tremendous op- optimism. Now watch this. In the power of human achievement and the power of human ingenuity. In other words, most people, here's what shifted in culture during our modern era. Most people thought the only place this could go was up. That we're going to develop a 30-hour work week, that all these inventions are going to make life easier, that we're going to have a a level or a standard of living unlike anything else in the history of the world, which did happen, but they thought the, the, the opportunities and the options are endless when it comes to modernism. I think one of the best ways to understand the power of modernity is to bring you back, for those of you who can remember this, to a TV show that we used to watch as kids called The Six Million Dollar Man. Raise your hand if you remember The Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, it just took culture by storm. It was Lee Majors who played astronaut Steve Austin. And if you remember the show, he had been in this awful accident when his ship was landing and his body was completely destroyed. And with technology being what it was, they made a, a, a bionic arm and a bionic leg and some other bionic parts, I don't know, and, and he became kind of a superhuman individual. And though that might sound like such a small thing, just like a history of a television show, it actually set the tone for an entire generation and how an entire generation would think about the world around them. And so just so we know what's going on here, look with me, and let's go back in time at the the opening of this show every week, and let's try to feel what baby boomers felt at that time. Look up here on the screen. Looks good, NASA 1. We're coming forward with the side stick. Looks good. Uh, Roger. I've got a blowout. Paper 3. Get your pitch to zero. 
My son Paul and I were watching a movie a few years back, and he said to me at one point in the movie, he said, Dad, this is so fake. It must have been made in the 90s. <laughs> I thought, I can't wait for him to see something like this. But you see, that's the world that, that you and I, some of us who are baby boomers, grew up in. I want, I want to read for you again what was said there, because this is important to set up where we're going. Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology, we have the capability to build the first world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man better than he was before, better, stronger, faster. And I got to tell you, this truly capsized the, the, or encapsulated the world that boomers were born into. You see, with World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II now behind us, boomers were born into a world that was ready for a massive societal rebuilding. The New Deal had come out in the 30s in response to the Great Depression and this promise to revolutionize the economy and society. The American dream was being birthed in most people's minds, complete with the vision of owning their own house with a white picket fence, two and a half kids, a dog, and a retirement on the future. Uh, combined now with mass travel, global communications, assembly lines, nuclear technology, the discovery of microsurgery, you name it, society was in full engagement mode with the modern world, and boomers, as I said earlier, were the recipients of a level of optimism and hopes for success unlike any other generation. You see, a lot of people fault boomers for their drive and for their desire to want to succeed. But, but let's be honest here. That was placed upon them in the modern world. They were primed from baby years on to be the generation, given the modern world that we were in, that was going to succeed. They were primed for success, and they would capitalize on modernity like a horse winning the triple crown. And so if you had to pick three very clear and easily discernible traits that marked baby boomers, three traits that would define success for them, they would be the traits of education, health, and wealth. But we're going to turn to the Bible here in just a second, but let's understand the backdrop so that we can understand the richness of God's word. Baby boomers are defined by education, health, and wealth. So notice first you add education. 
It's ironic. The year after the last baby boomer was born, the year 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed into effect the Higher Education Act. And in case you didn't know this, that act provided massive federal support for college tuition through tuition grants, guaranteed student loans, work study programs. And over the next few decades, watch this, enrollment at colleges and universities across the nation would rise threefold with more than 20 million boomers attending college. And I got to tell you, they became the most educated generation in the history of the known world. A college degree became a staple because of the boomer generation, something that their parents never had the option for. Why? Because they were working the farms. They were in the factories. They were immigrants. Think the 1920s and the 1930s. It truly was the greatest generation. But they had kids, and now all the awfulness of the world was behind them, World War II and the Depression, and they had great vision for their kids. And they sent a lot of them to college. And education became the seedbed for their success. And then you had the, gener and then you had the generational trait of health. <laughs> it really became the $6 million man. Physical perfection was now in sight for most baby boomers. Remember the Bo Derrick poster? She was a 10, right? Or how about remember reading those Archie comics and you read those Charles Atlas advertisements where that 98-pound weakling who got sand kicked in his face could go to the gym and start to develop the kind of body in which you wouldn't get sand kicked in your face anymore. Gold's Gym opened up in California in 1965. Muscle Beach became a popular destination goal. And this one really says it all. Frank Shorter's Olympic gold medal in 1972 spurred an entire generation to get running. In fact, this is a true statistic. In 1968, America had 100,000 joggers. Just 10 years later, by 1978, there were 27 million Americans jogging. And most of them were baby boomers. As a result of all of this, the life expectancy went up. And for a short time, uh, heart disease or death by heart disease went down. I mean, boomers were the ones who invented the idea of putting a treadmill right next to your executive desk in your office. And they were the ones who was the health generation, at least in their day. So you had education leading the way, health right in tow, and then a third generational trait that I think everybody knows defines boomers was wealth. I got to tell you, gang, this one is staggering. Boomers had a level of work ethic and drive that would rival their parents who worked the farm from sunup to sundown. In fact, by 2008, boomers had collectively earned $3.7 trillion dollars which is twice as much as their parents had at the same age. And though some like to think that it was mainly due to economic growth, that only accounts for 20% of it. 80% of the boomers' wealth accumulation came because of their massive size, their strong work ethic, and the fact that female boomers now entered into the marketplace as well. And they become, became one of the richest generations in the history of the world. And even though the recession of 08 hit everybody hard, I found this fascinating. A 2012 study done by the National Center for Policy Analysis found that 59% of boomer parents support their adult children financially. 59%. 
which simply means that boomers still have all the dough. Boomers still have a tremendous amount of money. And though we're going to see in a minute here that they haven't saved as well as they should, the reality is they still are known for their financial success probably more than anything else. And then something happened that nobody saw coming. And that is that the modern world did not deliver on what was promised to boomers. I mean, think about it. The modern world told them, get an education, Tone your body, earn lots of money, and you're going to find a level of success that no one else has known before, and you're going to be complete. You're going to find joy for your soul and purpose for your life. The only problem was is that education and money and getting your body in shape didn't deliver like the boomers thought it was. Would. In other words, it didn't create the $6 million man, and not to put too fine a point on it, but Bo Derek got old, just like we all do. And so what happened? I need you to wrestle with this. What, what actually happened to the modernist dream that eventually would lead, and we'll get to this in a minute, to what we call the postmodern world? Why did it not deliver? Well, think about the three traits that mark the boomers, education, health, and money. You see, education became costly, and what boomers quickly realized is that a college degree did not necessarily guarantee a job. I mean, they were told if you get a college degree, you're going to get a job. The only problem is all of us know now that just getting a college education doesn't guarantee a job, but back then, they thought otherwise. But they found quickly that an education didn't necessarily make you marketable. (laughs) And then think of health. Over time, you know what happened to boomers? It happens to all of us. They got fat and out of shape. They really did. In fact, a study done in the last few years has revealed that now today only 35% of boomers exercise regularly. And this one really takes a cake. Due to fast food and a sedentary lifestyle, they are less fit and more prone to diabetes and high cholesterol and high blood pressure than their parents were at the same age. And for all of their money, they didn't save very well. Unlike the greatest generation, their savings rate did not peak during their earning years. And more so, their ratio of debt to net worth is now 50% higher than their parents at the same age. So it's kind of ironic. Boomers earned more money than anybody else in the history of the world. They just didn't save it very well. (laughs) And they still have quite a bit, but the reality is, is that many of them have to work longer than they thought they would because they don't have enough for retirement. In short, here's the point, gang. The modernist dream did not turn out to be a dream at all. It was more like a bad night's sleep. And when you combine this with other societal and cultural factors like the rise of AIDS and high divorce rates and Vietnam and the Gulf War and terrorism on our own soil and economic fragility, all this led to the dashing of the modernist hope and this eventually led to what we call our postmodern world. We'll see the connection more here in a second when we look at the Bible, but just suffice it to say that the kids of baby boomers became cynical, they became skeptical, They became moral relativists in great part because they didn't see what the boomers said would happen happen even in the boomers' own life. You see, the baby boomers learned the hard way what God had already said thousands of years earlier in the Bible. 
I want to read for you again the first part of our text here today, the first verse out of two that we're looking at today, and see if now this doesn't make sense to you. Jeremiah 9.23, written 2,500 years before boomers would show up on the scene. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. Pause right there. <laughs> you know, here is essentially what God is saying to the baby boomers and what they had to learn the hard way. And it's point one in your outline, and that is that life is not essentially about education, health, and money. You know, what I find most fascinating when you read the Bible here is how the three things that God told Israel to not make their life about line up very neatly with the three generational traits of the boomers. Isn't that interesting? A wise man in Israel at that time was simply a learned man. You guys remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel got, got held captive in the Babylonian captivity and they sent him to school. And they taught him about the arts and culture and the Egyptian culture and society and commerce. And he became a very schooled person because they had school back then. And they would call that man a wise man, a learned man. And then a mighty man in Israel was simply a man of physical strength and stamina. It was a guy who went to the gym every day. It was a guy that went to Muscle Beach. It was the guy who, who went to Gold's Gym. And then a rich man in the Old Testament days was obviously a person of wealth. Think Job. Somebody who amassed a lot of land and a lot of precious metals like gold and other resources and was resting secure in their success. You see, Israel had their own version of wisdom and, and might and riches, and it collates very neatly with the boomers' emphasis on education, health, and money. And please see, gang, this is very important. God is not saying here, I hope you don't think otherwise, God is not saying here that it's wrong or bad to value education, health, and money. He ain't saying that. No, what he's simply saying is, is to not make these things the foundational things that you boast about in this world. There's something deeper and richer. You know, it's interesting, that word boast here in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in literally means to praise something, or I like this image, it means to eulogize something. You ever been to a funeral? When you eulogize somebody at a funeral, what are you doing? You're picking the choicest parts of their life, and you're focusing on them. And you're saying, man, that guy was great here, and let me tell you about this story here. And you're, you're kind of giving a snapshot of that person's life, and you're lifting up the greatest parts of his life and saying, that was awesome. And what this word boast means to do is exactly that. And what God is simply saying here is don't take education or wisdom, uh, money or wealth, health or physical strength, and make those things the things that you eulogize. Don't make those things the things that are foundational to your very life or you will be sorely disappointed at the end of the day. And isn't it interesting, guys, that the baby boomers had to learn the hard way that God is hinting to here that if those are the things that become the very focus of your life, it will take modernity right into postmodernism literally overnight. And now maybe you can understand why. Because if you tell a generation 
that they're all primed for success and that all they need to do is get educated, keep physically healthy, because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, yuck. If you want to keep healthy and then tell them to make a lot of money and that if they do that, they're going to feel really good about their lives and be all set. And then when that doesn't happen, what's the next generation going to turn into? A bunch of skeptics. They're going to go, we're not buying that bill of goods. It didn't work for you, Dad. So why is it going to work for me? And isn't it interesting, the postmodern kids are skeptical, cynical, spiritually disillusioned, and morally relative. And we wonder why. We say, why aren't you doing what I did? And they go, Dad, do I really need to go into that? See, God warned us about this a very, very long time ago. And this is exactly where a lot of boomers ended up, and it's led right into our postmodern culture. And yet, here's the good news. We're going to get really positive now in our 16 minutes remaining. And that is that boomers, many of them, did eventually realize the positive side of Jeremiah 9 through the school of hard knocks. And they eventually realized, some of them at least, that life is more important than wisdom, or life, is more, uh, life has more to it than wisdom and their bodies and their money. In short, they realized this, and this is your second and last point today, and that is that boomers realize that life is essentially about a relational and a spiritual journey. And that's really what God, I think, wants to teach us through the boomer generation. Let's read one last time how God will go on to say this in verse 24. I love how he switches tones. So in verse 23, he's kind of negative saying, you know, hey, don't be about wisdom and education and might and, and physical strength and, and money and wealth. But then he gets real positive and he says, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I got to ask you, gang, could God say it more clearly? Could he? I, I mean, it's fascinating here. But when he says right off the bat there that if we're going to praise or eulogize anything, which is what that word boast means, that it should be that we understand and know him. Again, if you don't hear anything, hear this today. Do we all understand that those are relational terms? I, I see my friend Glenn here. I mean, if, if I say to you that I understand and know Glenn, the connotation would be that I'm in a relationship with the brother. <laughs> The connotation would be that I've had a conversation with him and I've listened to him and I understand what makes him tick and, and, and that I've listened to him and he's listened to me and that we are friends and that we have a relationship. And you would be right in thinking that. And so when God says that he wants his entire creation to understand and know him and that that's the foundational thing that we need to boast about, that's why I say life is essentially at that point a relational and spiritual journey more than anything else. You see, the New Testament would pick up on the same theme and they would call it faith. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 6. <clears throat> it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now, what is faith? Faith is simply trust. Faith is simply dependency. It's leaning on someone or something. And when you and I use that word on a human level, we're simply saying relationship. If I say I got faith in my wife, Kim, 
that I depend on her and I lean on her for certain things, you would interpret that as a relational entity, as you should. And so when the Bible uses the word faith in light of God, don't miss this, gang, it's relationship that he is after. And then the object of our faith is Jesus. This is why we always talk about a relationship with Jesus around here. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in, say it with me, Jesus Christ. Some of you didn't say it. Say it with me. Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the object of our faith, the object of our relational activity with God is Jesus. And by the way, this is in contrast to what many people think your life is about and what they think my life is about, this is in contrast to religion. Do we all get that? This is a buddy of mine this week who I've been journeying with for years, and he's not a, a, a Christian, and uh, we talk about spiritual things all the time. We get together, and, and, and he slipped again once this week, and I've corrected him a thousand times. He, he'll say to me when we're talking, he'll say, well, you're only thinking that way because you're religious, and I said to him again this week, I said, you know, I hate it when you say that because I got to tell you, you and I have a common enemy and it is religion. I hate religion as much as you do. Religion is a man-made entity designed to confuse people about God. That's what it is. You ever studied major world religions? It really is the start of a lot of wars and bickering and, and they're usually just what you or I might think about God. I said, I'm not religious in the least. I'm spiritual. And there's a big difference. See, you're spiritual as well, I said to my friend. I wouldn't call you religious, but I'd call you spiritual. Why? Because as Augustine said, there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of you that can only be filled by God himself. So whether you know it or not, every human being made in the image of God is spiritual. It's just that you haven't found what you're looking for yet. But let's talk on the same plane here. I'm spiritual, you're spiritual, and that's what Jesus came to help us understand and to have an object for our relational faith, an object for our trust in him, which is Jesus himself. Do you see how this works, gang? And so the reality is, is that we're not talking religion here. When God says he wants us to understand and know him, it's all about relationship. It's about faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And then God gives, we don't have time for this, but in Jeremiah 9, it's such a rich verse, he goes on to give us three traits that he's really into as well. Put all three up here, and that is loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. Now watch this, that simply fill in the gaps on the kind of relationship he's looking for with you. He first says, I am loving kindness to you. This will blow you away. This word, it's the Hebrew word hesed, and it appears some 190 times in the Old Testament, and it's the Old Testament version of grace. It simply means that God is loving and kind to you even when you don't deserve it. Why? Because he loves you, and he's your heavenly father. And he says, I want relationship with you, and I want that to matter more than anything else this side of heaven for you. And so I think I'm going to be loving and kind to you in Christ through the forgiveness of your sins so that you would long to prioritize relationship with me, boast about this more than anything else. And then he says, I desire justice and righteousness on earth. I want the oppressed to have justice. I want people to have morally righteous lives where they follow me and obey me and my, find my, their sufficiency and satisfaction in me. That's what God is saying here. And so add it all up. If we're going to boast about anything, if we're going to foundationally make our lives about anything, God says, it should not be about education, health, or money, as good as these things might be in their proper place. 
No, it's to be about relational and spiritual things. Understanding and knowing him. Marked by loving kindness and justice and righteousness. Gang, this is his clear message to the baby boom generation. A generation that has been more educated, initially health conscious and wealthy than any other in the history of the world. And it's a message that all of us need to hear no matter what generation you're from. And don't miss as well, and I don't have time to go into this in detail, but don't miss as well, this is the answer to our postmodern world. I mean, the answer to our postmodern world is not to become a bunch of modernists again, right? You don't want to say to them, well, hey, try education and money and, and go to the gym. And I mean, those are all good things to do, but that's not the answer. The answer to the skepticism and the cynicism and the spiritual disillusionment of our postmodern world is not to get religion, it's to get relational. To help them understand, as I tried to do with my friend this week, that you're a spiritual being more than anything. You're a spirit inhabited by a body. That's what the Bible says. And the body is just a shell. That spiritual part of you is what matters more than anything else. And though you're disillusioned and though, and though you're skeptical and cynical, I get all that. Jesus gets all that. The reality is, though, he longs for relationship with you. And that's what matters more than anything else. And so honestly, this becomes the answer to even the postmodern world around us. And it's what I hope, closing thought and then one story, it's what I hope becomes the new mantra of all the surviving baby boomers. There's about 65 million of us left. And my hope for the baby boom generation is that we repent and we start to emphasize Jeremiah 9.24 over Jeremiah 9.23. And that we focus on that which really matters. You know, one of the reasons that this is such an important thing for me, and I'll be a little autobiographical here, is that I'm the last year of the baby boomers. I was born in 1964, one month after Kennedy was assassinated. And I was born into that same optimism, $6 million man, you can do it, just get your education and take care of your body and make a lot of dough. I was born in that world just as much as many of you baby boomers were as well. It's just I'm the last year of it. And yet I had a little bit of a different journey than maybe some of you had. When I was 17 years old, somebody explained the gospel to me. And I'm so grateful in God's timing because even though I was a messed up 17-year-old, the gospel made sense to me. I love how my friend Schrader says it. Schrader says that when he was 33 and somebody shared the gospel with him and said that he was a sinner in need of grace, he said he had 33 years of empirical evidence to back that one up. And I was the same at 17. When somebody said, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, I had no argument with that one. I mean, I'd done a lot of sinning in 17 years, and I felt pretty cruddy about it. And so the gospel was very attractive to me, that God would forgive me of my sins and want to enter into a relationship with me through Christ. So on March 11th, 1981, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And my life started to change fairly dramatically after that. It took a little, a couple of pulls on the ripcord to get it going, but it started to change pretty quickly after that. And I decided, in, and honestly, some people say, you know, what was your calling to ministry? Honestly, it was a lack of other opportunity. I mean, I, I just, I didn't have any other vocational desires. My dad tried to get me involved in law, and I said, that's about as exciting as Canadian curling. I mean, I just didn't think that law was very exciting. And so I, I went into the ministry because why? I loved God, and I loved people. I, I, that was it. And yet here's what happened to me. And again, maybe this is now going to bring home the modernist, postmodern, baby boomer, world of optimism. When, as soon as I got involved in church work, 
there is a tremendous amount of pressure for me to succeed. And success in church work from the early 80s on, when I got involved in ministry, was all defined, talk about the bionic church, by we can build it better, we can build it faster, we can build it bigger. Do all of you understand, out of 350,000 religious bodies in the United States, about 328,000 Protestant churches, before 1980, hardly any of them were megachurches. It was the baby boomers that thought of the megachurch. They said, we can build it like Walmart. We can have our own little target right on the corner there. You know, we can build this big church and have ministries for everybody. And, and before you know it, here I am, this young, impressionable pastor. And did I mention, all I want to do is help people know God and, and find Jesus. And I'm being sent to seminars on how to make the church grow and how to develop these new programs. And I can still remember interning at one of the largest churches in the United States as a young pastor. And the pastor, I think he meant well, stood up one day. This was amazing. He said, you know, for a children's ministry to succeed today, it has to rival Disneyland. And I thought he was going to say something like, but hey, no church could ever do that, so let's just give them Jesus. But he didn't say that. <laughs> he said, and our children's ministry is more exciting than Disneyland. And I remember thinking, well, it's one thing for a megachurch to say that, but what does that say for all the small churches in Iowa that, that, that don't have a budget that can compete with Disneyland? I mean, do we have anything to offer the kids? What's the answer to that? I hope so. And, and you see, I, I had all this pressure on me as a young pastor to make the church bigger, to make it better, to make it successful. But success was defined as more programs that people would attend, a, a bigger church service, a nicer building, see where I'm going with this? All the things that would come to define the megachurch. And I gotta tell you something very interesting about my journey. I couldn't have told you boo about modernism back then or postmodernism. That only came because I got educated. Back then I wasn't educated, I don't know any of that stuff. But there was something in me, and I thank God for this, that intuitively said, I'm gonna resist that. Like I remember interning at the, one of the largest churches in the United States and some of my friends called it career suicide, but I was so disillusioned with that that when I got job opportunities after that, I took the smallest one I could find in the most out-of-the-way place I could find, and I moved my family to Detroit, Michigan, where I accepted the position of associate pastor for Ebenezer Baptist Church. What a name, Ebenezer Baptist Church. And I went there because I fell in love with the senior pastor, who, by the way, is going to be preaching here next weekend. I'm going to be here with you. I'm bringing my pastor in. You guys are going to love him. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss this. And I fell in love with Kevin as a pastor and his wife, Carla. And we had a, a youth pastor at that time and me. And we spent nine years just doing church work. We worked with addicts. We worked with failed marriages. We work with people whose kids weren't turning out as well as they thought they were. We were right in the middle of the dashing of the modernist dream and we didn't even know it. And you know what we did? We just helped them to understand and know him. We didn't have flashy programs. We didn't have big budgets. In fact, we had very few resources. I can remember one time somebody came in and gave us a part of their inheritance check. It was like five grand. And she said, we'd like you to use this just to start reimbursing the pastors for, you know, mileage and meals and all that. Because we didn't have anything like that. 
We were all making very little money, but that's not why we're in this. We were in it to help people understand Jesus. Some of you remember these days. Doc Frey, you remember these days. My theme verse back then was Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It should be my theme verse now. In fact, it still is. Here's what I was after back then that I hope my soul is still after now. And that's it. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all spiritual wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You see, my greatest worry back then, and it's even more of a worry now, and I'll explain why in a minute, is that I really believe that on the day that my body stops working and my soul appears before God, that as a pastor, the number one thing he's going to say to me is, were you faithful to doing all you could to present every person in your church complete in Christ? You're saying, what does complete in Christ mean? Well, it's for another discussion. But just, just suffice it to say that it means things like you know how to pray and receive answers to prayer. You know how to read the Bible and get something out of it. You know how to be faithful to your wife and husband and your kids. You know how to work your job in such a way that you're working unto him and not just for the almighty dollar. You know how to give generously. You know how to commune and fellowship with other Christians. You know how to resolve conflicts. See where I'm going with all this? You learn how to be a Christian. You learn how to follow Jesus in such a way that you find that joy and peace that comes from following. I think that's what it means to be complete in Christ. And the whole point of church, I learned this back then, the whole point of it was not for bigger budgets, not for more buildings, not for more programs, as good as those things might be. That's all modernism stuff. No, the end goal of it is that we might know and understand him. That would have been a great place for an amen, so let's take another run at that. The whole goal of this is that we might know and understand him. Amen. That's the goal. That's what we're after here, that we might proclaim him, helping people understand him, finding their joy in him, and somehow in that to become mature and complete in Christ. And that's what I spent a decade doing in Detroit, and I'm so grateful for those days. Here's the dilemma, however, and with this we're going to be done. I know we're out of time here, but here's what happens when you do that. If you do it right, isn't this just the confounded nature of it all? If you do that right, your church will tend to grow. If you do that right, more people are going to want to have what you have, and before you know it, it's growing. So our little Baptist church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, that was 300 people when I got there, grew to about 1,500 people in about six or seven years. And here's where the dilemma comes for a pastor, is that if you're not careful, now watch this, if you're not careful, you can start to buy into that growth and make that growth and the numbers and now bigger budgets and more programs, that becomes the emphasis. Rather than what got you there, can any of you relate what got you there, which was a love relationship with Jesus. And we had to work so hard when we were in Detroit to not fall into the success syndrome. We were experiencing success. We had to work so hard to keep our eye on the ball, which was to help people know God. I know I've told you this story before, but I'll, I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. When I was first going into the ministry in the late 80s, I was heading out to my little Bible church one day on Sunday morning, and my dad was reading the newspaper. And my dad was reading in the newspaper that year about Jimmy Baker and his great fall, how I was trying to build Heritage USA and a theme park and an old folks home and all these things. And, you know, the whole modernist dream will make it bigger and better. And how he had fallen from grace. Reading about Jimmy Swaggart at that time who, who had been caught in doing illicit things in the midst of all of his crusades and all these things. And, and, and again, the whole modernist vision had just infiltrated the church. And my dad is reading this. And I'm heading off to my little, my little church. 
And he says to me, I mean, it was like a prophetic thing. He looks at his paper. He says, hey, Jamie, don't ever forget this. Your goal is to not build something big. Your goal is to help people know God. And I thought, oh, my gosh, where did that come from? And I thought, he is so right. The goal is not bigger, better, faster. The goal is to help us know Jesus. And again, I don't have time to go into detail with this, but I got to tell you, I was initially almost terrified to come to Scottsdale Bible Church almost a decade ago. And the reason was, and I worked hard with one of my mentors, Larry Crabb, on this, is that I was afraid that in serving you, I might lose my soul. In serving you, I might forget what really matters. That, that, that in trying to build the church here in Scottsdale that's already resource rich, that I might buy into all that garbage and think that that's what really matters. But I think, I think, I've done a pretty good job of protecting my soul. And the reason I know that, and I told you guys this before, is that I do not wake up every day. I, can't, I don't know how to prove this to you, except that you don't want to wake up with me. That would be scandalous. But I, I wake up every day, and honestly, my very first thought is not, I'm a mega church pastor. That would nauseate me. It really would. I don't think that. I wake up every day, and I... I can't even say this, I'm getting weepy. I just wake up every day and I thank God for saving my pathetic soul. And I thank him for forgiving me for my sin. And I say, whatever comes our way today, Lord, I just want to walk with you and be faithful with you. And if it means loving people and journeying with them, then so be it. I, I'm all in for that. But it ain't about the programs. It's not about budgets. It's not about buildings. We, we need all that because God's given us more people. But at the end of the day, my hope and in my darker days, I wonder if we're doing this, but in my better days, I know we are. My hope is that every activity here, everything we do, is contributing to helping you be more complete in Christ. Because I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, my only goal for you is that you would understand and know him. My goal for you is not that you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Though if that's the gravy, if that's the cherry on top of the cake, then amen. But that's not the goal for me. My goal for you is that no matter what God has for you this side of heaven, that you can find your joy, your peace, your satisfaction, and your sufficiency in Christ. And I hope that that's what you're after as well. What is it that your journey is about? Are you still stuck as a modernist, <laughs> kind of hoping for wisdom and wealth and all that? Well, if you are, maybe you need to repent of that. Maybe you're a postmodern here today. Maybe you're just cynical and skeptical and disillusioned. I get that. Jesus gets that. Maybe you're ready for relationship with Christ. I hope at the end of the day that what you and I are after, I know this is where my heart is, is that we might understand and know him, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth in these things I delight. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your word and how your word speaks so pointedly, not just to our individual lives, but as we're seeing in this series, even to generations. And God, it's no secret that the baby boomers have been one of the most blessed, but then one of the most crushed generations <laughs> that we've seen in a long time. And your Lord, in their brokenness, in our brokenness, God, may we finally look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and find our joy, find our faith focused upon you and your son, Jesus. That's my prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.